Hi, friends. Hi, friends, old and new. Welcome to all of you. Um, it's kind of a little bit of whiplash. I was thinking we might avoid the after Easter whiplash by not meeting last week, <laughs> but I guess maybe the trend just will continue, whatever that is. It, it's like supposed to be like the, the lowest um, Sunday for church attendance in any church is the week after Easter. So apparently if you don't meet the week after Easter, it's the two weeks after Easter. That is what it is. So um, you're here, and I'm so glad. Um, so have you all been... Does anyone here have family that does not live locally to where they live? Yes. Okay. Pretty much most of us. Um, And so if you're like me, which that is the case, you have to do some travel to be with your family. It's like a thing. You have to organize sports of family reunions, right? So as long as Jason and I have been married, that's always been the case for us. We lived in the Midwest for many years, and my family was in California. And then, you know, four years ago, we came to California. Now I have family in Southern California, so still a bit of a jog, but closer. And most of his family is spread out. So he's got four siblings, um, and so a sister in Wyoming, two brothers and a mother near Chicago, father in Michigan, brother in North Carolina. So we are, like, spread, the Martins family, all over. So coordinating to spend time with them. It's a worthwhile pursuit, but it's never an easy endeavor, okay? We have all these factors to balance. We have to coordinate, like, consider where everyone's coming from, what could be a reasonable location that people could travel to, navigating all these different family budgets, how much are people, do they have the capacity to pay? That could be a challenge. We all have kids, but different numbers of kids, different ages, so finding things that will work for all these families um, is also a challenge. Then there's issues of personality, preference. We have some strong personalities who like different things. Some folks want trips that, like, have a lot going on, uh, where there's lots of interesting things to do or places to go, right? Other people tend to be, like, maybe more introverted, want to make sure there's going to be lots of alone time um, and not a lot of activities. And then there's, like, various styles of communication. Some people are more direct. Some people less so. A lot of the family's not good at just like regularly staying virtually in touch. So then the time together kind of carries this extra relational weight. It's like this is the time we're going to get reconnected because we don't send a lot of emails, right? And that makes the stakes of every conversation kind of feel a bit more high, right? So in the end, I have found that we, and we do these kinds of trips, you know, once a year or so. And I have found that while I'm always grateful for the times we have with our extended family that we don't often see, I rarely go away just feeling like completely one way or another about the experience. It's generally kind of a mixed bag, right? There are meaningful conversations, and there are frustrating ones. There are places of genuine deep connection, and there are times when I feel like my family members and I are like speaking past each other. Pockets of people I'm closer to, folks I feel more distance from, And when we're all together, these dynamics are all the more in play. And those bring joy and stress, anxiety, deep affection. It's complicated. So I start with this story about family reunions because I think it reflects just one example of a social system that many of us are a part of that has a degree of messiness, even as it brings us life, right? This is front of mind for me this week because I just returned a few days ago from a trip to New York City 
where I spent time connecting with folks in another system that I, and by extension, Haven, is a part of. Uh, Jill, our other staff pastor, and I, we both flew to New York uh, to be with the other pastors from most of the Blue Ocean churches around the country. Blue Ocean is the little network of churches we're a part of. And it's been about 18 months since I've seen most of these people in person, although I connect with them uh, various, in various calls. I connect with some of them from time to time online. And this family reunion of sorts, you know, was similar to reunions of my biological family. It reminded me in a similar way that life systems are complicated, okay? And this feels like an appropriate topic as any to consider during this teaching series I've named. It's complicated, okay? I started the series on Easter Sunday considering the complexity of the resurrection story. It's not as simple as just victory over death, amen, right? There is loss inherent in resurrection, as well as new life. They're tangled together. So throughout the next couple of months, we're going to be exploring other places of tension in the life of faith, where there seems to be a both-and kind of experience, rather than an either-or, a paradox. And some of these teachings are going to probably be a little more theological. Today is less of an academic kind of Bible teaching, more of just a personal reflection, sharing some thoughts kind of stirred up from my trip, bringing you into my own thinking this week as I consider the social systems like Blue Ocean that I'm a part of and how they function, how they bring life, how they also have the power to bring harm, and where Jesus might be in the midst of all of it. So in this summary, I'm going to call this teaching, Systems are the Best slash Systems are the Worst. What specifically am I talking about in regards to systems, okay? In the West, many of us have been socialized to think of ourselves primarily as individuals who happen to interact with other individuals or groups, okay? We might perceive a group as just a collection of individuals. However, systems theory, I think I have this up here, recognizes that any group is more than just a sum of its parts. System theory reminds us that whether you're talking about complicated machines or biological organisms or human relationships, you can't fully understand something by simply considering the individual components. You also need to consider the ways those individual components are connected and the dynamics those connections foster. When individual entities come into relationship with one another on an ongoing basis, the relating can take on a life of its own, right? that's distinct from any individual stakeholder. The individuals together become the system, right? Specifically today, we're talking about social kinds of systems, systems of people interacting together. So our families are kinds of social systems. There are various stakeholders. They have some sort of organizing principles. There are structural elements to them. There are ways that the individuals function together and all kinds of dynamics that they introduce. But there are other social systems we're a part of. Our work is is some sort of social system. If we're involved in a school, that would be one, right? Any social organization we're a part of is some sort of system, okay? It may have a lot of structure. It may not have a lot, lot, but there are systemic elements to it. Haven, we are a social system. And there are larger-scale social systems that we are stakeholders in as well, okay? Every time you go to Target, you are participating in a system of commerce, right? You are, you're part of a bigger system. 
There are systems of government that we are all participants in. We are all stakeholders in, in some way. Whether you vote or not, you are a constituent of systems, local to national. Okay? I think at the core of these social systems, um, what's, what's kind of at the heart uh, is that we all have this need for connection. As people of Jesus-centered faith, the stories we tell suggest that we actually believe that as humans, we are actually made with a need for connection with other people, ultimately also with God. Our stories suggest that at the core of God's very self is connection, as God connects in God's own being with other parts of that being. There's a relational system, you could say, in the center of the universe. A trinity is the language the church uses of relations, a divine parent, Jesus, a son, a Holy Spirit. And so just as this divine has a social system within God's self, all of us are also called into various systems at different points in our lives. We're born into families. We go to schools. We might participate in something like this. And all of this allows for certain kinds of interactions to happen that have the potential of bringing the connection we seek. And that is to the good, right? But there's another side to the story that we have to consider, which is where the complicated comes from. Sometimes when systems take on a life of their own, that life can advantage some within the systems over others. That's the groundwork for oppression. The more that I've learned about how oppression becomes systemic, the more cautious I find myself feeling around any systems I participate in. Okay, that is real. It's an awareness I want to just hang on to in my own consideration of the systems I'm a part of, and particularly the ones I have the capacity to shape. So let me tell you about Blue Ocean Faith. I'm just going to tell you the story. One of the most powerful spiritual experiences I've ever had happened at a conference in Cambridge, Massachusetts, about 10 years ago. I don't have time to give you all the details of what felt like many miraculous moments that occurred that week. But I can give you my three big takeaways. I came out of that trip to Boston uh, confident that I had connected with people who would profoundly shape my view of ministry and be my partners in the future. That was one. Two, I had a sense that someday I would find myself beginning a similar community in a college town like Cambridge, Massachusetts, except it would be Berkeley, California. And three, I believe that Jesus was inviting me to see LGBTQ inclusion in the church in what felt, especially at that time, like a radical new way. And I agreed to partner with Jesus in starting a more inclusive kind of church, whatever that would mean, whatever that would cost. All of that was my introduction to this, these people involved in what would become Blue Ocean Faith. It wasn't even called that at that time, but that was the group. That was my orientation. So four years ago, I was being forced out of my movement of churches for holding true to this conviction about starting an inclusive church. So about six years after that initial event. I was now more deeply connected to these other pastors and churches who had similar convictions and a way of doing uh, ministry that really resonated with me. And so this network had started to call itself Blue Ocean. We functioned as a loose affiliation within a much larger system. 
but the larger denominational system we were a part of had begun to turn on our group. I was one of the first to be affected, but I had friends who were facing a similar fate. It became clear that we could no longer exist um, within the larger system if we were going to pursue kind of all that we felt called to do, particularly in regards to LGBTQ inclusion. So we gathered four years ago in New York City in early 2014 to consider our options. And we grieved the season of functioning as simply a company of like-minded friends within a bigger system, that that was ending. But we also looked ahead with hope. It seemed like perhaps this was the beginning of a new thing for all of us a new system that was forming. Later that year, I moved to Berkeley. By September, we had a little system of our own forming, nine adults and some kids meeting in our living room, considering what it might look like to form a new faith community. That little system eventually named itself Haven, and it has taken a lot of my time and energy in the last three and a half years since. But during that time, more pieces have come into place in this origin story of the Blue Ocean Faith Network. There was about a year of churches uh, leaving the systems we were previously a part of, each in their own way, affiliating with this fledgling network. Some of the exits were really painful. Some were more peaceful. Some larger churches lost a lot of people as they took a stand for inclusion. Others, like the church I actually used to work at in Iowa, it went really well. They, they grew and grew um, in, in, the, in the aftermath. And they're now more vibrant than they've ever been. So through the years, this little system of churches has been evolving. There's been some lovely developments. But eventually, every system needs some structure, right? So this one's no different. A formal leadership team was named. Values have been articulated. The leadership team took several months to thoughtfully craft through what they call the six Blue Ocean Theological Distinctives. If you're curious what those are, I did a whole teaching series you can listen to online a while back, and, and I share them at the, at the Haven 101 class, so you can come and hear it next week. Um, but they're basically ways to give voice to kind of how we think through the story of God uniquely, potentially, in, in a Blue Ocean church. Over the last few years, I've also really appreciated the chance to connect with people who have similar philosophy thinking about how we do all this, similar theological journeys, similar approach to interacting with the world around us, and in some cases, these folks have become very dear friends that I enjoy. I mean, I'll be honest, doing a project like this, starting a faith community from the ground up, it can be lonely. It's been taken a while for us to kind of like find our people. And many of the people who were initially part of this thing three years ago aren't with us anymore. They've moved on for one reason or another. So it's been really nice to have some people, at least just for me, to connect with on a regular basis outside the Bay Area. For the last couple years, I've been part of a regular online call that happens like once a month with some other pastors where we just simply share some of our challenges, some of our ideas. We pray for one another. It's nice to be able to talk to others who are living through those challenges, those questions. It's great to have friends. And the circle of friends includes some like deep soul partnerships as well. People like my friend Emily, who some of you met when she spoke at our retreat last summer. And of course, my mentor, the pastor I had the joy of working for for five years in Iowa City. I like moved to Iowa to work with this woman, and I'd never regretted it. Um, Aidy Wasink has been one of the dearest people to me in the world. She's walked 
through some of the biggest challenges of my adult life with me, journeying with me to the other side, crying, cursing, praying with me, all of it, when that's what I needed from her. She celebrates me. She calls out my gifts. She also has a capacity to identify my struggles when I have a hard time seeing myself clearly. Okay? I value her wisdom, care, heart, leadership immensely. And I feel this desire to just be doing stuff with her. And so if she's in blue ocean, that's immensely heartening for me. All of that gives some context to what I was looking forward to this week. Okay, so there was about 20 of us pastors there representing about a dozen churches around the country. It's not a huge group. I was excited to reconnect in person with some of my friends, particularly 80. Sad that some of them weren't there as well. But even so, there were these moments of real warm connection. And it was a joy to introduce everyone to Jill. And on our last day together, we had a wonderful lunch connecting with two of the other children's ministry pastors. Aidy was there, and we could all kind of talk about how things were going in our churches with the kids and, and just share people's hearts, and it was wonderful. And one of the most fun developments was sharing with the group about what we've been up to here in Berkeley, seeing some of their enthusiasm. Particularly, there was this group of newer young staff pastors from that same church in Cambridge I mentioned who were, like, actively celebrating our work, shared about the journey we've been on to become a community that's actively considering what does it mean to be safe, diverse, Jesus-centered? How do we understand that at times we have to confront ways that systems were a part of are oppressive to various people groups so we can participate in dismantling those systems of oppression? I shared how we've been on a journey to name some of the idols that have taken hold of these church systems we're trying to emerge from, and people were digging it, were grateful excited to have those conversations. But as is true in any system, as this little group grows both in numbers and in years journeying together over time, various social dynamics enter in. Okay, there are affinities. Some relationships are closer between folks than others, right? Some personalities click more than others. This is natural. It's normal. It is the way of things, right? But it also introduces, as a group kind of becomes more of a system, right, the capacity for dynamics that are complicating. We have to wrestle with who holds the floor in a meeting. What conversations are valued in the system? What voices are elevated? What voices aren't? The dynamics and tensions may be subtle. And overall, in this context, everyone's really good-natured. But I can't help feeling aware of my questions and concerns around all of it. This week was an important time of connection, which I value. I'm grateful to have this system of support for myself and our community, which I've been describing. But I am also left with questions about systems in general. How can we foster systems that bring life and freedom and flourishing to all who are part of them without anyone feeling left behind? devalued, oppressed? How can Blue Ocean be about that as it grows? And even more important to me, honestly, how can Haven be about that as we grow? And this finally brings me to briefly considering Jesus, how he might handle these system dynamics. (laughs) So we're going to take a little look, all right? Because honestly, there's nothing new under the sun, as they say. Let's take a quick look at a story in the life of Jesus.
that I think has some resonance with these questions. So this comes from Matthew 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons. And kneeling down, she asked him for a favor, meaning Jesus. And he said to her, what do you want? And she replied, permit these two sons of mine to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. And he told them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right and at my left is not mine to give. Rather, it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Now, when the other ten heard this, they were angry with the two brothers. But Jesus called them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions use their authority over them. It must not be this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a story, I think, about system dynamics. From the beginning, they are at play, right? Jesus has established a little system with his 12 apostles. And let's say from the beginning, he established systems, There are systems all throughout this. It's not about, like, there are no systems. We should just get rid of them all, right? He has systems. It's like Jesus, and then he's got these three that are the closest, right, including two of these brothers. And then there's the 12, and then there's the 72, and there's all of this structure in place so that people can get what they need, so that people's needs can be taken care of. So systems in general, it's not like a total rejection of them. But how we navigate them, that is the question, right? So there's this pair of brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee. And in the mix of this relational dynamic, their mom, okay? Mark in his account actually gives us her name, Salome. Salome is also a follower of Jesus. She was part of kind of the bigger group, the 72, the accompanying uh, folks that are kind of with Jesus, right? She was one of the women at the cross. She was one of the women who was the first to witness the resurrection. So these three... They're coming to Jesus, and they seem to have a little family alliance, right? They have an affinity. They are together. They are a block. And with it, what are they trying to do? They're trying to secure power within the system. Now, perhaps intentionally, the presentation has this, like, air of humility, right? She's, like, supplicating herself at him. Let me kneel at you and ask you a favor, Jesus, right? That's pretty smart. I think we often tend to do that, right, when we're asking for power, when we're asking for advantage. We know how to kiss ass, right? That's kind of what is happening here. She kneels. Oh, Jesus, would you give me a favor? But what's the favor about? Permit my sons to sit, one on your right, one on your left, okay? I want to make sure my boys are taken care of. Now, in some ways, this is like one of the most relatable mom moments like in the Gospels. Moms like to make sure their kids are taken care of, right? That's, that's like part of what we do. It's particularly, it's helpful to have our kids recognized as special. That feels good, okay? But as normal and relatable as that might be, when this mother is asking for this advantage for her kids, the dynamic is also deeply problematic, 
What Salome is advocating for will influence the shaping of this system Jesus is establishing. She believes there is power to be had in this system, and it's like a zero-sum kind of game. You either grab it or someone else will, right? The places on the right and the left of a throne in this era, those are going to be the places of the second in command and the third. They are the seats of political power, okay? This is what she's trying to lobby to make sure her sons have. This advantage, the places of significant power and privilege that they are in their hands. But Jesus has a startling reaction. You don't know what you're asking, he says. You don't know even well what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? And this is where we get this sense that the Zebedee family has been misreading the situation. They're assuming they understand how this system works. That this system is like any other kind of political system they have seen. And yet Jesus seems to be saying right here, this is not the same game. We are establishing a different kind of system. Jesus' system isn't about climbing to the top to get the best perks. It's not about securing like lush housing or a generous retirement package, right? Handing out similar perks to those who are closest to you. Jesus seems to have a different mission ahead of him. He uses this metaphor to describe what Jesus understands to be his mission, his unique destiny, and by extension, the destiny of those who would want to share leadership with him. It's drinking a cup. Are you prepared to drink this cup? What kind of cup is he talking about? It's not a cup of blessing and bounty. Rather, it's the same metaphor Jesus will use just six chapters later in Matthew. When he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he's arrested, Oh, Father, take this cup away from me. It's the cup of suffering. In this moment with James and John, Jesus is foreshadowing what is to come. And he's asking them, Are you really willing to suffer with me? Because the way that you're asking for privilege makes me think you're not. Likely, the brothers don't really understand what Jesus is saying. Sure, we'll drink the cup. If you can do it, we can do it. We're with you. And I think the irony of the moment is Jesus recognizes that even as they don't understand what they're committing to, they're speaking truth that will indeed come to pass. Perhaps if they knew what they were saying, they wouldn't be so confident. But James is the first of the apostles to be martyred after Jesus' death and resurrection. John suffers a different fate. He's the one to live the longest, which means he sees all of his closest friends martyred. He experiences the loss of all of the people that he was in this system with, one after another after another, after they are tortured and killed to stand up and say yes. This, this story we're telling about Jesus is true. They're both going to suffer a lot. They're both going to drink the cup. And in that moment, Jesus himself is aware of how countercultural his mission is and how ill-prepared his followers really are to step into it, that they just don't get it. But in his response, I think it's nice, it's interesting, it's helpful that he also models 
a different approach to leadership. They're asking him, can you promise us these spots on your left and your right? And you would think he could say, well, sure. I mean, if, if I could if that was something I was interested in doing, right? But he models this profound awareness of what actually authority is not even his to hold, right? He says, to sit at my right and my left is not mine to give. Rather, it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. I'm not even going to claim authority that I haven't been given, Jesus says. Even if you understood what you were asking for, which you obviously don't, but even if you did, even if the privilege that you seek was something that was at stake here, I wouldn't give it to you because that's not my job. I think that shows a profound self-awareness and control of Jesus. And it begins to give us a sense of how he understands authority to function, what it means to hold it. And so this is kind of uh, then the moment when we bring the rest of the people in, right? Everyone else is hearing a little bit about what just happened, and they're mad, okay? These folks are like, oh, my gosh, was there a contest to try to get those spots? Because if there was, like, I wanted to be a part of it too, but I thought we were all kind of going to play it on the down low, you know? So there's that moment when they find out, okay, they actually asked for it. Now, wait, I, I should have had a chance. Wait, you're trying to take it from me? All the grumbling, right? And Jesus is aware of it, and he calls out what I think might be the most direct challenge of, what, of the problem with social systems. He defines it for them. He goes directly to it, okay? He says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions use their authority over them. He acknowledges, we all know how social systems tend to work. It's power. It's people grabbing power and using it to lord it over others, right? This always happens in the oppressive systems you've seen and you've been hurt by. Someone takes control, and they use that control to push other people down. And then he uses this corrective. It must not be this way among you. It must not be this way among you. Don't be like every other oppressive system. Don't join the zero-sum game. You don't have to play that way. Jesus seems to be calling them to a different way. Instead, he says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Jesus seems to be contrasting the striving for power with an open-handed posture of grace and concern for others. Security for myself, letting that go. Care for the person in front of me instead. His system seems to be centered in renouncing power and uplifting others through service rather than concentrating and securing power for oneself. It's the kind of thing he preaches over and over in different ways. I mean, it's like a drumbeat that just keeps going through Jesus' work. The last will be first. The first will be last, he says. If you want to enter the kingdom, the system of God, become like a little child, a person without power. When you feed the hungry, when you clothe the naked, when you visit the imprisoned, when you serve the powerless, when you extend yourself on behalf of the vulnerable, he says, you are serving me. If you want to be about what I'm about, that has to be your focus. This is also what Jesus himself modeled, even through the end of his life, in the way he lived and led. Modeling the night he's with his followers for the last time. 
taking off his outer garments and taking the role of the humblest servant in the room, washing their grimy feet and saying, please do this for one another in the same way. Serve one another in this way, modeling through the way he pours his life out, even to death on a cross. The cross is a renunciation of human systems of power that harm and oppress. Do you hear that? The cross is a renunciation of human systems of power that harm and oppress. Jesus refuses to fight power back with more violent political power. They're asking him to do it. Take up the sword. Let us fight back. And he refuses. That is not how we're going to win. Rather, and I think I have this here, Jesus identifies with the powerlessness of those who have been oppressed by the systems that harm. Do you hear me? Jesus identifies, maybe I don't have this one. Close. Okay, it's coming. Identifies with the powerlessness of those who have been oppressed by the systems that harm. In the face of systems that oppress, Jesus doesn't become another oppressor. He stands with the oppressed. Amen? In the face of systems that oppress, Jesus doesn't become another oppressor. He stands with the oppressed. And when he rises, declaring that the oppressors do not hold the final victory, he brings hope to all who suffer through oppression that their suffering is not the end of the story. Amen? Amen. I believe Jesus in this passage is inviting his followers to imagine a different kind of system, one that's not based on a hierarchy of power, but a system that is able to help all to flourish by creating communities of service and care rather than concentrations of strength. And I believe this offering is here for us too, reminding each of us to look to the concerns of the community, even when that requires our own egos to recede so the group can flourish. Sadly, 2,000 years plus of church history reminds us that just because Jesus spoke these words, just because we have preached them, doesn't mean we've always understood the lesson. Many of our church systems are intensely hierarchical in ways that don't bring life to all, but have concentrated power in the hands of few and brought harm to many others. Let's name that. Jesus has continued to need to meet the oppressed people of the world and comfort them in their oppression, but sadly many of their oppressors have been generally white Christians. And this leads me back to our starting conversation. How do we think about the systems we participate in? the systems we're a part of forming. How can we bring about the best, the best in systems and minimize the tendencies that make them the worst? I gotta be honest, I don't have a clear set of answers. <laughs> I have more questions and concerns, which is maybe not great when you're kind of starting to establish a system, but also maybe the most helpful. Um, I think the first takeaway I have is that awareness of the concerns around the concentration or sharing of power is a starting place. It's important to talk about it. 
it's important to have our eyes open to this tendency, to this concern. I, in our time with Blue Ocean, I shared it. There was like this prayer time on the last morning and where people were kind of like putting out there first, like kind of what are we grateful for and what's, what, you know, what are we excited about with Blue Ocean? And, and a lot of it was very warm and fuzzy. And then I was kind of like, the, ah, I have another thought. <laughs> and it was just honest. Like there's, there's no reason. I don't have anything specific that I'm naming about this particular group. But I am aware that the church has a horrible track record of doing this well. And, and how are we, you know, what, what do we think that we could somehow, you know, just do it better? Um, I'm, I'm aware of that. I, I feel cautious about it. I feel concerned. I want to at least name the concern so that we can all be aware of, of it. And I offered, I, you know, just in the moment, I, I can only believe that if it's possible to do something different, it means we have a lot of self-awareness, a great deal of humility, and a real desire to share power amongst ourselves. Um, that, that, that maybe would be a help, a starting place. So at least awareness is in the room. We, we could pray into that in our prayer time. That was like the place we started, was just asking for God's mercy. Asking for God's mercy in that, to keep us aware. But awareness isn't enough, Okay. My second step is I think then you need to actively be looking to find ways to share with or yield power to a diverse group of people, particularly those who have historically been denied power. I think that's core. If there's going to be any hope for a different kind of system that's not just based on hierarchy and concentration of power, it can't end with awareness. Our awareness should ultimately lead to cooperative action. Which leads me to think a little bit as we end about Haven. Our structure is currently set up in a way that, I got to be honest, it concentrates a lot of power in my hands working with the boards. I have always felt somewhat uncomfortable about that. Um, it's often how it goes with startups, whether they're churches or, you know, companies, tech companies, whatever. Um, having a clear leadership structure that's like expedient is helpful, helps us for us to be able to like move on things. There's also reality of, like, in the beginning, you just don't have a lot of people. So it is what it is, right? Um, we were able to kind of make some quick movement on things like, let's change our service structure to two Sundays a month. We didn't have to go through, like, endless meetings about it. That's helpful. That's useful. But I and the board are also aware of the potential dangers of that kind of model, okay? We are calling upon the community to hold us accountable, in this to servant leadership. I want your voices. I need them. I need your involvement. This is part of like this whole, you know, when we're not a, the kind of uh, community that's going to say, okay, you need to do this in order to have this much of a stake and this to do this. You need to join and be a member and give this much or if you want this. And this, it's not like that. It's very much, a, you know, participate in whatever way is helpful to you. But we're giving you opportunities to actually have a voice because we actually care about what you have to say. <laughs> we actually feel like the more people do take a stake in it because they actually want to participate in a meaningful way in helping shape this thing, that's only to the good for all of us. Does that make sense? So I look forward to having more partners in leadership to share power with. I mean, having a partner in Jill, that's a good first step. So grateful. And I'm still praying 
for as we grow. Other staff and leaders, particularly those, can give voice to a more diverse set of life experiences. I believe our staff and board should be racially diverse, should feature queer voices, should be um, gender balanced, should reflect power being shared at all levels amongst a diverse group of people if we are to be committed to being a community that values safety for a diverse group of people unto Jesus. Amen. I'll be honest, it's a work in progress for Blue Ocean. It's a work in progress for Haven. And the jury's still out on how it all work out. But I do have hope that as we grow, if we in this community maintain a posture of service unto the community, concern for how we share power, then there may be hope that Jesus will meet us and lead us by the Spirit into embodying that countercultural kind of system he envisioned, the system like the heart of the universe. The Trinity is a system in which, within God's self, power is shared. The various persons are served. That's my prayer, that Jesus, the Spirit, the parent, they could help us move into that. So systems may be the worst sometimes, but I'm praying that as we journey this together, we can also experience them being the best. Amen.